that's excellent. That project, that was a weekend project that's taking you like eight to 12 months. Yeah, I, it will be done within a year of starting, I hope. Um, my family keep giving me grief for taking so long, but I'm doing like an hour every sort of every few days. So, But they don't complain when you're taking that time to spend it with like them, right? They, they never no. care then. Exactly, exactly. If I spend any time doing it, they complain. And if I haven't finished it, they complain. So it's, you know, it's tough. I, I very much relate to that. So it's great to actually be talking to you. I mean, we we sort of uh, go back and forth on Twitter all the time. So it's nice to be able to actually like hear your voice and put a uh, a more recent uh, face to the name. Yes, you too. Yours too. So I wanted to talk to you about so much, mostly because, you know, I I try to have people from sort of all across the data spectrum on, you know, both from like, I have a lot of Tableau users who are my primary audience. And then we have, you know, sort of the educator wing of the party. And I haven't really had outside of um, my friend Madison Hall, who works at Insider, I haven't really had many data journalists on. And I'm really wanting to sort of, you know, both for myself and for listeners, better understand what is data journalism, like what's sort of your role, both in journalism and data and stuff like that. So I want to ask you, first of all, you've been at The Economist for a really long time at this point. And Economist yeah. is actually one of my favorite news sources because uh, in a world where everything feels increasingly polarized all the time, it feels like The Economist is one of the more sort of, I, I'm not going to say, I guess, fact-based. It it doesn't feel like it necessarily has agendas as much as it is more of you know straight reporting. So um, how did you get started at The Economist in the first place? Um, so I, when I left university, I joined a temp agency, um, which was really good. It's based in Covent Garden, which is like quite a nice area of London. The first job they got me was um, working at the Ritz Hotel for a week, um, taking bookings for their afternoon tea, which was amazing. The second job was working for Calvin Klein in Bond Street, um, just running the showroom there. And the third one was a week's temp job at The Economist. Um, so I went along. They asked me how well I knew Excel. I lied and said very well. Um, the job was really just a very sort of basic data sort of validation thing, just double clicking cells in Excel um, to see if they lent, led to the right cell, you know, clicking a formula, making sure it went to the right place. Um, so I did that for a week and the pro obviously they underestimated how long the project would take. It lasted, you know, way longer. So I did another week. And I, during that time, I sort of I just started to learn to um, to code with v, VBA or really to record a macro. And I sort of got interested once I saw what it recorded um, and how I could improve it. And I think that was just enough to convince them that I did know Excel a bit. So I um, I joined the uh, the what were we called uh, the economics unit of the Economist Intelligence Unit, um, and I was there for seventeen years. And then when the previous editor-in-chief of The Economist wanted to set up a data team. <clears throat> they um, they looked around for people within the group who might know something about data. And then fortunately, I was on the radar of the person setting up the team. And um, he said, okay, if you can um, prove that you know D3 by Monday, then um, you can have an interview. And this was Friday. So I read some books and some websites and I had a long weekend and I managed to get something working for Monday. And that got me the interview and I got the job. And um, so I've been at the data team of Economist since it started in sort of Jan 2015. Um, and it's, it's just been amazing to see it grow literally from about 10 to about 22 people. 
and just the scope of what it does. Um, it, the, the graphic details section in print every week, the modeling, the interactive stuff we're doing, it's, um, it's been a privilege to be a part of it. So first off, my, my immediate thought is, I think everyone lies on their resume, how well they know Excel. I think that's just a standard assumption. I had a CEO at a former organization once who referred to a power uh, to PowerPoint as an advanced skill, saying if you really want to get on his radar, you have to know advanced tools like PowerPoint, which I was in IT at the time. And it basically deflated the entire division. Like anyone that actually was technical was like, oh, no, he really doesn't know how difficult things are. But that, that's interesting. So you you sort of had this um, career trajectory where um, sort of not bluffing, but, you know, investing yourself really rapidly in tools to sort of gear up um, was a big boon to you successfully. So is D3 the primary data visualization tool that your team uses? The interactive side, yes. Um, so we have um, four interactive developers. Um, I started with D3. They use D3 as the kind of the, the package for building interactive, not just charts, but anything interactive. And then they use um, they were using React, but now use Svelte um, as a kind of a wrapper for most of what they do. But I don't think there's anything out there that's better than D3 at sort of letting you combine code and data and make it move. Um, that sounds a bit trite, but, you know, get, getting something that you can interact with and, and explore and learn from. Certainly. I mean, we've all seen stuff like RJ Andrews famously did the moon landing once where you could actually see uh, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong move across the screen and it would describe the different events that are happening and have their dialogue pop up as if it were like a text exchange. So you can do all sorts of stuff like that, that, you know, other tools just are, are more limited in. It's, it's definitely one of the advantages there. Um, let me ask you this. So in terms of topics covered by the journalism team, so you've got a large team now, 22 people. Are you sort of the editor at large deciding what topics get covered or is it more of a, a team is covering a topic and they're going to need some supporting stuff in terms of that and that's where your team comes in or some third thing? Um, it's kind of a third thing. We have um, in the day's team, there's, there's me who sort of runs the team. That's very much just a sort of manager role. And then we have Dan Rosenheck, who's our data editor. So people um, pitch graphic detail ideas to him and then he says yes or no or he helps shape that story so he edits the the print page um we also have had just for a lot since the beginning of the year really um a special projects editor who is um a kind of filter for ideas from the whole newspaper um and then working out what will work well interactively um and so um, they're working with evan on, on my team um, to decide on the projects and then Evan um, works out how we build them and who, who on our team works on those. Um, the, the interesting thing about data journalism, and this is something that I guess other newspapers have as well, is The Economist has lots of beat journalists who are experts on housing or you know, Africa or, um, or any you know, cryptocurrency. And then we have data journalists who are very good with data and some of their stories might touch on housing or cryptocurrency or, um, you know, Gini uh, inequality in, in Africa. They would talk to the beat journalists and basically say, are you okay with me covering this? Um, almost always it's fine. Sometimes the journalists might say, actually, I was thinking about that. Let's collaborate. Um, that happens and that's great. But very often there's a traditional reporter doing stories and then there's a data journalist 
and they can cover the same kind of topics, but very rarely in the same way. So there's there's space for for two approaches, I think. That's interesting. So sometimes it's sort of being pushed up from the data team. Other times it's coming down from sort of more conventional journalists and meeting in the middle. Um, what kind of skills does one have to have to be a data journalist? So like, let's say you have a position open, you're looking to hire and Zach wants a blue check mark. Like, what do I have to have, uh, to become part of, you know, your team or like, what are you, what are you looking for? Is it more of, they need the journalism, journalism experience. They need to have D3. Is it a combination of both? I mean, are you hiring many people that were sort of a business analyst and they're sort of coming in and having to pick up the journalism aspect of it? Or are you looking for people that are already more mature? Um, it, it really does vary. Um, I, I think, I don't think there's anyone on the team who went to journalism school. Um, if, if there is such a thing as journalism school, um, the, the range of, um, subjects studied by people before I started, I did, uh, modern languages, Evan did medieval history. I think, um, there's a couple who did kind of economics, um, that kind of thing. Um, Sandro's our um, sort of expert, excess death modeler. He he came straight out of academia. Um, there's no specific background, um, and there's not even a specific um, sort of skill level in, in writing. It's um, have you got good ideas? Can you um, bring them to fruition and you know write them in an interesting way? you'll get edited to high heaven at the beginning. And then gradually the amount of editing goes down as you sort of learn the style of the economist. But um, really it's just good ideas. Um, and for data journalists specifically, uh, numeracy, um, you don't have to know um, Stan, you know, which is a really niche um, sort of modeling language. You don't, you don't have to know R, but it's very unlikely you're going to get an interview if you don't know R or Python, just because one of those two is um, is being used in every data story, pretty much. Um, just because it's, it's quick and it's a good way of analyzing data and, and seeing if there's a, a story in, in that data set. Sure. I mean, those are tools that in sort of my wing of the data industry, we associate more with like data science as they are a little bit more rigorous and statistical. Um, I'm way more in the visualization wing where people don't have to be as fluent in those tools. And it's more about sort of getting uh, for a particular business, uh, revealing insights to your customers. And in many cases, much like us communicating to an audience, uh, in your case, you're communicating to the public. So, you know, you, you have to have whatever details they need to interact with whatever you're providing them, whether it be a sort of flat visual or an interactive visual because you're not going to be able to hold their hand and talk them through it much in the way that if I created a dashboard, I may get to demo it for someone once, but after that people will discover it years from now. And if I don't do my job and making it a seamless experience for them, then it's going to be a burden. Yeah, completely. Um, we, we hope that all or as almost all of our charts are not necessarily instantly gettable, but very quick to understand. Um, and if it is a bit more complex, it's worth investing the time um, with with the chart to get something from it. But our, our our approach with standard charts is the same as with our writing. It's um, clarity and brevity. You know, we don't want to waste your time. We want to hit you with the most important things straight away. So, what about unorthodox chart types? Like, I know particularly with journalism, a big part of your ask is you need to grab eyes and get the attention to get the reader to engage in the first place. 
So where do, where do charts weigh into that? I know often headlines and, you know, we use the term clickbait uh, to a degree to sort of get the eyes to say, oh, that's something I would like to engage with. But I imagine in terms of if we were to talk about this, like a newspaper page, like the top of the fold, you know, in terms of a web page, how many of your graphics are you front loading as in putting towards the very front of the, the article? And also, um, to what degree do you lean outside of the more conventional line bar pie sort of charts that we're all used to, to uh, catch attention with something that might be unorthodox? So the, the first part of the question, um, the, the main output of the data team is um, the daily chart, which we do one of every day and the graphic details section, which is one a week. Both of those article types lead with the image. Um, so the first thing you see when you hit that web page is uh, what we call a wide or a sort of two column chart. Um, that it would be weird if if we didn't really, because it's a it's a data driven piece, it's a chart led piece. So you you lead with the chart. For the rest of the newspaper, as we insist on calling it, um, there might be small blue charts scattered throughout a piece. Um, there are considerations like you wouldn't have three charts on one page and one on the next. Just the, the sort of the visual balance doesn't quite work. So there's a kind of um, there's a design choice in where they go, but generally these small charts support a, a sort of one line of sort of fact within a story that the story is not built around those. Um, they're generally very standard. They're lines and bars. I, I did a count up at about fifty percent of our charts of bar charts, I think, about 30% of lines, and then the other 20% we'll talk about in a sec. Um, but they had the, the right way of displaying that data. You know, if it's a time series, we're not going to go all weird just because we can. We, we, were, we don't use many sort of um, stream graphs, even though that's a way of showing things over time. Um, we, we kind of favor the, the simplest uh, way of telling that story through data quite often because we don't have that much space. Um, so there are limitations to what you can fit into. I think it's about two inches um, wide. It's not that big. Um, for the one column charts we get in print. For the bigger stuff, we can do more. Um, I, I'm trying to think of some examples. We, I think the good thing with the graphic detail section, um, we've been going for like nearly three years, um, we don't shy away from having three line charts if they are the, the best way of telling that, you know, bigger data story. Um, equally, we've had some quite, um, uh, some xenographs, as I think Martin Lambrex uh, calls them, um, uh, a sort of clustered, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of this, uh, where we presented the European Parliament uh, with sort of globules of uh, political leaning uh, it was a very striking chart. It took, took quite a while to design. It, it wasn't something people are used to seeing, but it was a really interesting way of showing um, how uh, parties cluster across countries on their political spectrum. Um, we'd done, uh, uh, Roz Pierce did a really nice job on a story by Ainsley Johnson about um, how bees social distance. And so she used these diagrams of like a beehive um, Usually bees come into the beehive and they mingle around, sort of do their waggle dance to tell people where the people tell bees where the pollen is. But if they have a certain parasite on them, they'll just hover around near the entrance because they don't want to spread it. And that was, um, I guess you'd call it just a sort of 
uh, yeah, it was a B-swarm um, chart type, um, but it's, you know, it's not what people are used to, but if it's part of the story and if it tells the story well visually, then then we'll, we'll go for that. So we're not, we, we deliberately didn't set out to always try and blow people's mind and we don't want to, you don't want to sort of give people the same old stuff every week is whatever works best with the story. And that's a nice, um, it's nice freedom to have that it's whatever the visual designer thinks works best in conjunction with the, the data journalist and the data editor. Sure. So forgive me, there's a certain economy to storytelling there where you're, you know, having to weigh in some cases, hey, why use, you know, like five words instead of one in terms of this chart right. when we could use the most streamlined, orderly, sensible chart that the most people understand versus we have an opportunity for a little bit of novelty here in a way that will also engage people in this story in a way that they might not otherwise have experienced. Yep. So um, <laughs> I know news outlets have graphics teams and it sounds like the data team is distinct from the graphics team uh, in The Economist. Is that correct? Or are you sort of part of a wing of that? Um, the, the, there's kind of three roles within the data team. There's the data journalists um, who find the data, analyze it and write the stories. Um, there's the interactive data journalist, so Evan and his team who make the stuff that moves. And then there's the visual data journalists who make the charts. So they're what I guess other papers might call the graphics team. But rather than just handing off some data and say, chart this, they're much more involved and they collaborate with the data journalists and say, you could do it like this, you could do it like this. Uh, what, what story are you trying to tell? This will help to explain that better. And there's always sort of back and forth between those, them and the, the data journalists. And I, I think that leads to a much better product than a sort of service desk where you just hand off your data and it, wait for a chart to come back. It's, it certainly seems like it because we do all see online all the time sort of the data fails that come out of various news outlets where bars are clearly mislabeled or, you know, uh, one is dramatically higher but says it has a lesser value or a chart okay. type is just sort of a nonsense chart for the specific instance. In those cases, you have to figure that having a more specified data team would have been a benefit because they would have had the understanding of which chart to use, why and when, and why that doesn't make any sense or at least what to look for. Um, so I think that is definitely a saving grace of the way that that your team operates. Um, so you're saying you know, you've got these three different roles within the team. In terms of sourcing data for various topics, I know there's uh, government websites and NGOs and stuff like that, public domain data and stuff like that. Um, how often does the team start with, hey, we found a data source. I think we could look into this and find something versus we know we would like to talk about this particular topic. Um, I think it's sort of maybe 50-50. Um, it's definitely a lot of the former um where someone might stumble upon literally stumble upon a data source there was a really great story um one of our data owners wrote a few years ago about um it was for our christmas issue where we can get a bit more sort of um long read it was about um tattoos in prisons and he found a really good data set of every um felon on their way into um the prison system in Florida and on their way out and what tattoos they had at the beginning and at the end. And it was just a, a really interesting, it was like an access database. Um, I had to sort of brush up on my MS access to work out how to even open it. Um, and then I just sort of spat it out into Excel files for him. Um, and he did some great analysis on the data, but he also went to some prisons in Florida and talked to the, the people who make the, 
the actual machine that you use for tattooing in prison, which is like a biro with like an electric motor from a tape player. Um, and it was really interesting. Uh, the, the whole story was great. The data set was a kind of a case, a, um, a case study in um, being careful with what you get. There were so many typos um, and we couldn't work out if they were typos on the tattoos themselves or the guy or, or, or woman transcribing the tattoos. And, you know, there's a, there's a difference. Um, ideally, your tattoo isn't misspelled, but the, the person tape writing it down has misspelled it. But so we couldn't even do that much analysis on the, what the tattoos said, but he was able to sort of create a fairly simple model to associate certain crimes with certain tattoo types. So there's the, you know, there's the classic case of a teardrop showing that you've killed someone or something, but there's other types. Um, facial tattoos were not that prevalent in murderers, uh, for example. Um, it, it was just as kind of a, a real um, open-ended data set to, to look around and, and see what stories could come out. That's fascinating. So that, that's exactly yeah. my kind of thing. Um, it, and that's a really, really interesting data set in particular. So you're seeing the the ingress like inmates entering into the system and what they had pre-existing so like you said the teardrop indicating you know that you've killed someone or different tattoos that would indicate gang affiliations or stuff like that or even like i don't know military tattoos to indicate if they had served in various branches but then also you can see on the the um outcoming inmates like are there new affiliations that they took up on the inside or you know there, there's some things like you know that um in the u.s prison system islam is sort of a recruiting factor in prisons like a lot of people sort of find faith of some form on the inside like might they get a tattoo that represents something like that so that's really uh really an interesting thing that you can get out of the data i know for me one of my big um inspirations of getting into data before i even realized data was a field i could be in was in college i read freakonomics and i was sort of fascinated by the stories like that that they could tell like one of the big stories I found found was interesting was they would often juxtapose two seemingly unrelated career paths, like who delivers a greater value to their client, a pimp or a real estate agent. And they would show the different analyses that they've conducted on, you know, are real estate agents more likely to get you a better value for your home? And what value does, you know, sort of a pimp deliver to the sex trade? Like, do they keep you out of prison? Do you get higher pay rates and stuff like that? So that's, that's always something I found interesting. And I didn't know I could actually make money doing that. Um, yeah. Especially since uh, when I first got into data, much like you, I was, you know, I was doing some uh, object-oriented programming, and it was when I first started using SQL that I discovered, oh, I like this this far more than the UI aspect of it because I found sort of Visual Basic to be uh, cumbersome and burdensome. And then as I discovered Tableau, which really made you know the ease of dragging and dropping uh, and data exploration very rapid for me. So rather than you know combing through my SQL data set and doing different groups and joins. Um, I could basically do a little bit of setup on my data to get it all you know, joined up. And then I could do that exploration visually and quickly sort of ferret out the areas of interest in my data. Um, and then that was sort of my, my path in that. So yeah, it's interesting to hear how different people get to different spots. I know you were saying that your journalists don't necessarily come from a single background. I know one of the best you know, data folks I know was a French major. Like I, I came from the business school. So I had a marketing degree and a management information systems degree. So I sort of came from the tech end. He came from the, you know, foreign language end and we both ended up in the same spot. So it's it's fascinating to see how those different approaches can inform people's uh, understanding of the field and how they approach uh, different topics. Yep. 
Yeah, I, I think the, the real advantage with data journalism is oh, the key skill, I think, is curiosity and the ability to keep going at a data set until you find something. There's a kind of a hidden skill as well, which um, is important, which is knowing when to, to quit. Um, you know, no one likes to spend two weeks cleaning data only to find there's nothing there, but it's better than spending another two weeks and then still finding there's nothing there. Um, so, you know, a good instinct, but um, sort of knowing when, not when you've reached your limit, but when it, it's just not going to yield anything. It's rare, but it's it's good to know that everyone gets to that point at, at some stage and um, just abandon it, move on, and maybe you'll come back to it in a couple of years when you thought of something to combine it with or thought of a different angle. So what kind of turnaround times do data journalists have on these various projects? So obviously, we've got different levels of, of, of effort here. We've got the more interactive projects with D3, where we're talking about you know sort of scrolling interactivity, mouse hover changes stuff, that sort of thing, versus your flat images. What kind of turnaround time would, is someone expecting from the time it's first announced, you know, whether in an email or meeting, hey, you're going you're gonna to be working on this thing, to, uh, okay, it's in, it's in quote print now, like it's live? Yeah, um, it, it varies. Um, generally, if it's, um, say, a daily chart, um, we're, we're kind of veering a bit more towards news-led uh, daily charts, which is, which is great. Um, it's a good way of reacting to the news in a kind of empirical way. Um, and it so it keeps us on the sort of the top of the homepage. Um, but as you know, working with data can take a while. Um, I think probably the, the quickest we can turn around a story is uh, it's decided upon at 9.30 in the morning and we publish sort of towards the end of the day. Um, so that's the data gathering, cleaning, getting it into shape. A visualizer will then start making the chart while the data journalist writes the story. It will go through a number of senior editors um, and the chart gets sort of edited too. And then that comes together and gets published. So, you know, six hours or so for um, a really fast turnaround, um, usually news-led data story. Um, a graphic detail could take a couple of weeks, um, could take longer if it's a huge data set. Um, Ainsley did a, a great piece recently on uh, quantifying the disruption of Mariupol where she used um, not satellite data in the truest sense, but a, a different technique, which uses, I think, microwaves. It bounces off the surface. And depending on how um, uh, uneven the surface is, tells you how um, sort of destroyed the buildings are. And she was able to quantify pretty, uh, you know, very accurately uh, the damage of Mariupol. That took a good two or three weeks just to sort of get the data, clean it, and sense check it. And something very important, she was able to sort of corroborate the data by using a different data set from the UN. Um, and then we built uh, some, uh, not just the print article, which had a great map and uh, a chart showing the comparison of the UN data, but online it had these um, sliders so you could see before and after damage. Um, it had more uh, sort of in detail maps. So that's a good sort of two or three weeks for something like that. And then there's in between where it could take a couple of days to get the data. Sometimes you're emailing someone and just sort of waiting for the data to arrive. Um, so, you know, it's, it's quite usual for a, a daily chart to take two or three days, but that's not solid work. That's just sort of waiting for the data to come back, then asking some questions, waiting overnight to get the answers, etc. So that's the kind of data stories that come out. Interactives, 
take longer. Um, the Evan and, and his team have done some incredibly fast stuff, but generally you want weeks for a good interactive um, because, you know, as you all know with Tableau, there's so many things to consider. Um, you know, should it be a hover over? What goes in the hover over? Am I hiding too much information that way? Um, should there be different approaches to the, the same data set, et cetera? So you've been sort of operating this team about seven years at this point or so since 2015. I started in 2015, but I think I took over the team in 2017, so about five years. What has changed for you in that time from the time you first started? I mean, uh, like what has, you know, has um, the tools changed the most, the approach that you take to data, the kind of stories that you're telling, uh, the kind of people that are joining the field? Like what's what's been to you the biggest surprise and what's been changing? Um, All of those things have changed, really. Um, When I started... um, we were using a um, 25 year old piece of technology to make the charts. Um, so this was like a, a macro that you'd run in Excel that spit out a, a text file and then Illustrator would ingest the text file through a script and make a sort of economist looking chart. But you, you, there was no link between the chart and the data. Um, I was really keen uh, that we have something a bit more visual and a bit more, um, what's the word? Um, shareable i guess um so the same guy that built the 25 year old thing um he built a new tool called silver bullet which is a browser-based charting tool uh, so you put your data in a google sheet press a button then it makes an economist chart and you can change the chart type you can take change the axes um labeling things like that 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 was a real game changer because it meant our research team could see what the charts look like um and sort of hone them a bit more before they got to the data team, to the visualizers. And it, it meant you could do more getting the chart nearly ready in the browser. So that, that was a real um, asset. Um, the other side, I think, is all of the visualizers now use R, um, you know, not necessarily, not for every chart at all, but for any complex chart. Um, instead of a data journalist, a DJ, doing all the work in R and then just spitting out an SVG or a PDF, they can hand over the script to the visualizer who can then play around with ggplot and some of the parameters and get it a bit closer to what they want. So the, this idea now is coding is not just for the DJs, it's, it's for everyone. Even if you're just tinkling with parameters <clears throat> in a sort of one line of code of ggplot. I mean, a lot of them do way, way more than that. But this idea that everyone can and should be comfortable doing a bit of coding is, is a real sort of step change for, for the team. It just means there's, there's far more um, knowledge and um, sort of code sharing amongst the team than there was way back in sort of 2015 or 17. Um, and then the people coming into the field, I think if anything, that's the same as it was, as in, we're not looking for journalist majors. We're not looking for people who are um, just good writers. We're, we're really looking for people with good data ideas um, and they can come from anywhere. So that's the one, I guess, the, we, we, we hired about eight people last year and they're all, all amazing and all in different ways. And so they all bring something different to the team. Um, I guess the thing that has changed is many more people see the benefit of data and data viz and they see it everywhere and they, they want to get involved. 
So um, there's probably a, a bigger pool to choose from now than there was five years ago. Let me ask you this. Uh, you're talking about sort of generating economist style charts. So you've got a house style, obviously, and I imagine you have certain color palettes you're sort of married to as well as to like uh, typography. Does that generate like alt text as well when you're, when you're doing something like that? And to what degree are you bound to the house style when creating different things? I imagine like with the in-article charts, like the simple bars you're talking about, you're probably much more bound to the economist standard than uh, some of the interactive stuff, but I could be wrong. Yeah, no, you're, you're totally right. Um, so we have a, a print style, um, which we're reviewing at the moment um, a bit. You, you should always review what you're doing every sort of few years anyway, just um, A, to sort of keep it fresh, but B, um, it kind of gets to what you're asking about alt text. Um, we don't have alt text at the moment, and that's bad. Um, so what we want is for our charting tool to spit out, not just a sort of static PNG, but something that's a lot more screen readable, um, whether that's an SVG or whether it um, automatically generates the alt text from some of the text in the chart. Um, so that's one consideration, um, making sure our charts are accessible for colorblind people. I had a, a very angry letter today. I can see their point, um, it's, but it's really difficult to accommodate um, everything in a tiny space um, with a, what is a limited palette, but it's a, it still got me thinking about how we could do better for, with that. Um, but with the interactive stuff, it's been really nice that we can be a bit freer. Um, so um, our sort of lead designer, Matt McLean, he, he will work with the interactive team and he'll sort of give them a, a sketch file or, or something saying, this is, this is an approach that is gonna work really nicely with this. And what we're trying to do is have a design where you can have all these interactive elements and it might not be charts it might be a you know a slider or a um uh, we, we did a piece on where you move around a russian newspaper and um, and if you have charts in there as well that they look part of the same piece you know what you don't want is to have something that's like got you know it's on a black background it's um it's you know a really sort of innovative design and then you have some blue charts further down that just look out of place. So having a designer across the interactive stuff is, is really important. Um, and it, it's kind of, the more we do of that, the more we know that our print style is different from our online style, which is different from our interactive style, which is different from our Instagram style even, but they all need to feel part of the sort of economist um, family. So, so I guess that's the more um, output places we have, the more difficult that becomes, but the more important, I think, that things feel branded. I understand that. We have a, a house style. I work at Jones Lang LaSalle, which not to brag is 70 years older than The Economist, which is no spring chicken itself. Um, but yeah, uh, in our team, we have a, a viz standard. We have guidelines as well. And, you know, we have certain color uh, styles, um, you know, t uh, fonts and sort of everything that we sort of expect as a baseline so that we have this sort of continuous style across our dashboards, both for, you know, client comfort as well as ease of use and accessibility. It's funny talking about accessibility. Um, my previous career, I worked at a nonprofit for 13 years, uh, for a good part of that time was at a call center and we had several visually impaired agents and the software we we're using at the time was a Salesforce CRM deployment. And we would get um, complaints from some of the, uh, the visually impaired agents that like, hey, I don't know what the screen is saying at certain times. You know, my, they had a software product called JAWS they would use to screen read. 
And um, they asked uh, me and my friend, the French major, to fix these things. Um, and unfortunately, they would not spring for the license for JAWS software so that we could test it ourselves. So what we did is we locked ourselves in a back office for two weeks and discovered a free trial of something called Thunder, which was sort of a JAWS uh, competitor. And Thunder would let you use it for one hour free. So the two of us would alternate between making our uh, code changes, downloading Thunder. Every time you initialize Thunder would go Thunder. <laughs> so for two weeks, we would do that. You would hear that sound about 16 times a day as we would cycle through this. And then in the end, none of it worked anyway within uh, the CRM. And uh, yeah, it was it was a nightmare for accessibility. But no, I, I, I appreciate the effort you're taking there. And it does make a lot of sense that depending on uh, the format of what you're approaching, you have to take different approaches as well. Um, if someone in my audience is interested in getting into data journalism, what would you suggest the steps they should be pursuing are? I mean, obviously, if they're listening to this, they're either my mother or someone that is already in the field in general, uh, let's say they have big data journalism dreams. What would you say uh, they should think about investing in themselves or uh, have before they apply for these kinds of jobs? Um, I, th I think the thing that I've always looked for in a new hire is more than one skill, if, if that's the right way of putting it. I'd, I'd much rather hire someone who is a very good writer and can knock up a decent chart and someone who's an amazing writer but has no visual you know sense at all um and uh i, I guess for a, an interactive person someone who can code but can write a bit as well or is, is happy doing a static chart here or there i think this kind of um multidisciplinarianism is a good thing um the the other thing i would go you know part of that as well is just because you've never made a chart in you know even in excel or google sheets um if you're applying for a job where charts are a requirement don't go in there cold and say i've, I've never done it at least have a go at least try um where i was recruiting a while a few years ago and it was down to the final two and neither of them had used r but when it got to the final interview one of them had installed it and had a go and that to me is such a big step mainly because I know how hard it is to install R and it, it's just not easy. But um, the fact that they'd done that extra thing and showed they were, they were definitely going to be picking it up and um, it showed the willing and it showed the kind of um, uh, practicality of doing the first thing, which is getting it installed. Even if you just opened something and look and go, I haven't got a clue. You're still one step ahead than the other person. Um, so, it's much better in an interview to not lie and say, yes, I'm brilliant at this and you've never seen it. Much better say, oh, I, you know, since we last spoke, I've, I've looked into it, I've installed it, I've had a look, it looks daunting, but I can't wait to learn. You know, that's, that's what I want to hear as a potential sort of recruiter rather than I've never done it um, and I don't know when I ever will. I think you found the sweet spot between data and journalism, which is curiosity. If you uh, lack that, you're going to struggle in both fields and yeah. especially the nexus of the two. Um, so before we wrap up today, I am curious. One of the big things you and I often tweet back and forth about is succession. So uh, you have turned me on to a lot of good TV shows, including succession. Um, what what should I be watching right now that I'm not watching? Um, did you start Dairy Girls? I, I have I not recommend. started Dairy Girls. Tell me about Dairy Girls. I cannot recommend that highly enough. It's set in the, I think, the early 90s um, in Derry, which is, um, I don't want to say too much because my knowledge of 
Irish history is, is really bad. Um, it's it's not an Irish history programme at all. It's a sitcom about uh, a group of um, mostly girls and one of their male cousins who's over from England. And it's a kind of coming of age sitcom, but set against the backdrop of the end of the troubles um, in Northern Ireland. Um, and it's really funny, uh, really well written, but also quite poignant. And if you are of a, old enough to remember, I remember IRA bombs. I remember, you know, a lot of uh, trouble. That's almost um, underplays it quite a lot. It's just a really good way of sort of looking back and it's not even that long ago. Uh, that's excellent. It's on Netflix. It's really, really good. You might need subtitles. Um, I needed subtitles. Um, the, the accents aren't that strong, but it, you want to catch every joke. So it's, it's worth putting the subtitles on. Um, and I just finished Severance. Have you watched that? Excellent. Excellent show. Yeah. Really, very good. Um, I'm, I'm learning the, I'd say I've learned the theme tune now on the piano. Um, there's only four chords. Um, and I'm just going through Stranger Things, which is like watching a movie every night. Um, it's very, very high production values. Um, and I'm not sure what I'll do next. Have you got any for me? I do. Um, so I don't know where you'll find it in the UK, but Letterkenny is a Canadian comedy. It's a small budget and uh, it's similar in uh, its genre to either Always Sunny in Philadelphia or Seinfeld in the sense that it's based around uh, it's entirely character based. It's in the small Canadian town. You've got the different groups like the Hicks, which are the farmers, uh, the jocks, the hockey players, the, uh, the stoners. And it's all these characters bouncing off of each other. And after you give it a few episodes and you start to get used to the characters, it's just this uh, much like shows like Seinfeld and Always Sunny because it's so character driven. It's uh, all of the drama that can be brought about by bouncing these comedic characters off of each other. And I think they've recently spun it off uh, into a second show after about eight seasons called Shorzy about uh, one of the secondary characters whose face you never actually see, but is played by the main character as well. So uh, give Letterkenny a shot if you uh, if you want a little bit of Canadian humor in your life. Excellent. That sounds great. I do like Always Sunny and Seinfeld. Good tip. Excellent. So, Alex, I really appreciate you coming on because I've always wanted to talk to you. I had so many questions about this in general, and I know if I found them interesting, it's marginally possible my audience will as well. I'm joking. Um, but no, it's uh, I, I really enjoyed this, um, having the opportunity to talk with you. Thanks for taking the time with me. It's a real pleasure. Thank you, Zach. Hey, thanks for sticking around to the end. I really appreciate you listening to the Data Plus Love podcast. If you'd like to see more about what we're up to with the show, go to anchor.fm slash data plus love. Just spell it out, not a literal plus sign. Here you'll be able to see our library of episodes as well as interact with them either through polls or comments or leave a voicemail message that I'll put on an episode. You can interact with me personally by joining me on Twitter. I'm at Zach Bowders, not hard to hunt down. And if you like what you're hearing, consider leaving a tip for us or signing up for a small monthly donation at our ko-fi.com slash data plus love. Buying a cup of coffee for the show is just $3, and you can get more if you choose, or sign up to give that $3 or more monthly. Either way, I really appreciate it. Lastly, if you'd like to see more of my public data viz work, check me out on Tableau Public. So go to public.tableau.com and search for Zach Bowders. 
I'm the only one. You won't have trouble finding me. I promise. So thanks again for hanging on to the end of the show. I really appreciate all of your listens. And until next time, this has been Zach Bowders for the Data Plus Love Network. <laughs>